Hello, listeners. I'm Senna Cleave with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Dr. Cora DeBeck, Erica McAdam, Callie Sedgmore, and Dean Wilson to talk about drug policy in Vancouver. They discuss various models of drug decriminalization and safe supply, as well as what both academic research and community knowledge recommends for the future. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again. We're going to be talking about drug policy this week regarding research with community members and academics that are working together on projects. We have a number of wonderful guests with us. Why don't we start with introductions? Okay, could you start? Hi, thank you so much for having us on today. I'm really excited for our discussion. My name is Erica. I use she, her pronouns. I am currently a research assistant at the BC Center on Substance Use, and I'm a recent graduate from the Master of Public Policy program at SFU. My thesis research at SFU focused on drug decriminalization and evaluated different models of decriminalization, and they all differed on how personal possession was defined. I'm also a white settler, and I live and rest on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Coast Salish people, so the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. too. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great to have you with us, Erica. Dean, did you want to go next? Yeah, I'm Dean Wilson. I'm the peer lead at the British Columbia Center for Substance Use. That's my main gig right now. I'm also a community liaison for the Portland Hotel Society, but my main gig is the BCCSU. And I'm the past president of ANDU, Vancouver Area Network Drug Users. I started the British Columbia People on Maintenance nonprofit. Won the Queen's Jubilee Medal for my work in the neighborhood and just a resident shit disturber in the downtown east side. And I just don't think that because we use illicit drugs, supposedly, that we should be animals that should be jailed. And I will never stop saying that. So great to have you with us, Dean. Cora. Hi, thanks so much. I'm so delighted to be on this podcast and have so much respect and regard for everybody on the call or on the cast. My name is Cora DeBeck. I'm a white settler from the traditional and unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at SFU, and I'm also a research scientist at the BC Centre on Substance Use in Vancouver. And I lead a longitudinal cohort study of street-involved youth who use drugs and have been doing research on substance use and drug policy for about 15 years. And yeah, delighted to talk. Thanks for having me. Great. Kelly. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, Kelly, and I'm a youth researcher with Arise at Rescue Study and also someone with lived experience or living experience. Um, I mainly work with a lot of youth that use drugs and someone that fights for stimulant users because they often get forgotten about in this crisis. So it's me. Great. Thank you. Erica, why don't we start with you and just in terms of setting up the study that you were involved with related to different models of decriminalization, where the project started from and kind of what the findings of your study were. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So as I mentioned before, so my research was a multi-criterion policy analysis that looked at a bunch of different decriminalization models, all which differed on how personal possession was defined. So Some use threshold quantities to define personal possession, whereas others do not use threshold quantities. And this research really came out of some of the public response to the decriminalization submissions by the city of Vancouver and the province of BC, and also from the response from drug user advocacy organizations like Vandu. 
that really highlighted that the thresholds used in these submissions were inadequate from their perspective. And there was really like a lack of evidence and evaluation of different types of decriminalization models. And so my research really helped try to fill that gap, essentially. So I conducted, it was a mix of qualitative and quantitative methods. So I conducted 16 qualitative interviews with experts and key stakeholders, and then also analyzed police drug seizure data obtained through freedom of information requests, and also used data from the longitudinal cohorts of people who use drugs from the BC Centre on Substance Use, which was Chorus Research. So in this analysis, my research findings found that a model that uses 15 grams to define personal possession, so anything up to or equal to 15 grams, would be the model that would best advance the key objectives of decriminalization for the province. And I imagine with the multiple stakeholders involved in attempting to come up with thresholds ends up being a kind of grand compromise, which probably includes law enforcement and others just having worked on the Vancouver Agreement before. And I can remember some heated conversations uh, back in the day around moving public policy and the move towards harm reduction and health approaches outside of um, law enforcement, but they were certainly in the room. I'm wondering if you can sort of add to what Erica shared, Cora, related to the study. Yeah, so Erica's work around decrim, I would I would also even just before she did some of that work, she did an analysis using our longitudinal cohort data, which was collected during the COVID pandemic. So when the COVID pandemic hit, we were able to, through telephone interviews or on Zoom, talk to over 700 people who use drugs to ask them about what the quality of the drug supply was like for them from their perspective since COVID hit. And that paper, which Jean and, and Kali are both co-authors on, really highlighted what the community had been saying for a really long time, what people really know, which was that it was really the the drug supply that was driving the overdose crisis. So we found that, you know, over 35% of people were reporting that the drug supply had reduced since COVID and that the people who reported that were also more likely to experience an overdose. And so I think in the context of talking about decrim and the different stakeholders and thresholds and various discussions there was, I think, a lot of tension around what the purpose of decrim was and what we were trying to achieve. And I think I would love to hear from Dean and Callie, but I think there was a lot of calls that we needed to respond to the overdose crisis and decrim was put in for that, you know, supposedly. We know that it doesn't address the drug supply, but then in talking about what the, you know, what the thresholds might be and, you know, different stakeholders' perspectives, I think there's this real gap between what the scope of the problem that we're seeing, the amount of deaths, the harm, and then to, you know, what the decrim models have been put forward. So yeah, I think in terms of different stakeholders and their different perspectives, I think when it came to discussions of threshold models, there was a lot of frustration about the scope of the problem and where different actors wanted the threshold models to be. Definitely the um, <clears throat> pandemic situation exacerbated, elevated issues that were happening um, on the ground. And uh, Dean, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit. Yeah, well, the context, yeah. First of all, on the threshold, I think the number is irrelevant. I think getting the framework of decriminalization is the most important thing that has come out since the Insight case. You know, it's going to tell police to lay off, leave us alone. We're not criminals. And that's the important part. I love the fact that Erica's research told us what the people think the number should be. And maybe we can get up to a half an ounce, 15 grams. I personally think the the lowest level should be an eight ball, which is 3.5 grams for those that are street. But that's about the lowest it should be. But I think, as I say, the numbers are relevant. Who cares what the number is right now? We are going to put a framework in that says decriminalization is the proper way to go. We are on the right side of history. 
Now, as far as the COVID thing goes, I'm starting to wonder the COVID just speeded up the change of the toxicity of drugs. I think that the cartels or whoever may be shipping this stuff has realized that it's a lot better to have two chemists in a lab than 40 people growing opiate poppies in some field. This is the new wave. It was really hard to fight heroin anywhere for the longest time. Now it's back at full force. But the thing is, the toxicity of the fentanyl structured drugs is just horrible. And of course, the addition of Valiums and all those other drugs, benzodiazepines added to it, is just a horrible outcome. But that's where I think everything is at right now. Great. Thanks, Dean Cully. As someone who works frontline and is working at OPSs, but also runs a coalition for drug users, it's been horrific, just with, especially with COVID, because drugs just got more toxic and it was just bad because it's just like people that were using stimulants, for instance, are dying a lot more now too, because it's getting worse out there. The drug model is going to be interesting, but it's not going to really save anything because it's not going to save anybody's lives like they think it is. It's not enough, like a lot of you to buy a large amount. So like the 2.5 is going to really put them at risk for more risk and stuff like that. Yeah, the drug supply is just getting more and more toxic and it's just going to be, I feel like it's just going to be getting worse because there's more things being added to drugs like tranquilizers and stuff like that. So it's getting quite horrific and just we're losing so many people too. So it's not great. It's a step forward, but it's also not going to really save lives, I don't think. Uh, Deep. Yeah, I want to reiterate that the decriminalization of drugs will have no bearing on overdose resulting in death. It, it has nothing to do with that. You know, the government seems to get the strangest answers to the questions we ask. But the decriminalization is a great, great thing. But it will have no effect on the overdose at all. The only way we're going to affect change there is to offer the people that need it the drugs that they're asking for. That's it. I hate using the word safe supply because safe supply means so many things to so many different people. It's just being trampled on. I don't even know what it means nowadays. But I think the, the only thing that will change the overdose is to actually make sure that people are able to access the drugs that they wish to access, period. That's a really great point, Dean. In looking at the period, and sometimes it's great to look at historical examples, because when Insight as a supervised injection site opened, you have to remember the demands in the community were around heroin prescription and getting access to a safe supply of drugs. But at the time, the government was unwilling to move on it because they felt like the academic studies hadn't been done and that type of thing. And so the opening of Insight in a supervised injection site where people brought in street drugs was a compromise to have something open while those studies were being done. And as Naomi and then later Salome opened was to create the kind of policy framework. And over 20 years have gone by without that policy framework having been implemented in a proper way, although it seems like there's going to be some movement on some kind of safe supply, although not fully defined as of yet. And still a lot of challenges around the medical professions and the distribution around questions of ethics related to that, which haven't fully been worked out. And, and I'm wondering if any of you would like to speak a little bit to, you know, the context that we're in right now is very different than the 90s, where the push for harm reduction came from to reorient this from a criminal justice issue to a health and human rights issue. But we're having triple to quadruple the number of deaths in B.C., that's been driven by the fentanyl contamination of the street drug supply, exacerbated by the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can speak to this broader context of perhaps forms of legalization or safe supply that could be a further intervention and kind of how can we put some lines around defining what that might look like from a policy point of view that lands down 
on the ground that could change those indicators as quickly as possible? Well, you know, back in those 90s, late 90s and early 2000s, we were fighting a whole different thing. We were looking for needle exchange because we were all dying of HIV AIDS. And so it was a whole different thing. People were, let's remember, in 93 and 97, we did have many overdose crises. But as I say, most of the things that we worked on back there were anti-HIV sort of stuff. And so that's what we wanted. We wanted a safe place for people to shoot so they could get their clean gear. And that was part of the insight thing. But, you know, nowadays, the actual drugs that we're using are toxic. It's a whole different thing. It's like 100% different. It's not the same as back then. It's a whole different thing. The drugs are now toxic. They're poisonous. People that are addicted to opiates have no recourse. They have to use something to keep that monkey off their back. And, you know, you said something that's really interesting, how we went from a criminal to a medical model. I wish we had to skip the medical model and just gone to the social model. Look at some of these doctors are as bad as any cop I've ever met. Let me be honest with you. They think that they should be in charge of the drug control and everything else. And the bottom line is the drugs are toxic. The only way we're going to prevent any more overdoses is to give people what they need. And if that's through like a compassion club type of thing, Dr. Sutherland, Christy Sutherland, who works for the Portland Hotel Society, is doing some marvelous things. But she doesn't want to be prescribing drugs for people who want to use them for enjoyment or for coping, stuff like that. She wants to be a doctor. And so she wants to sort of hand off these programs to more like a club where people could join. They don't have to have substance use disorder, but they're able to buy what they need, such as fentanyl or heroin or whatever. So I think compassion clubs will be a starting out point, uh, Am. But as I say, right now is so much different. I don't think the comparison is even needed anymore. It's just totally different. We've arrested HIV in our neighborhood. We did a really, really good job as a community health program. And now that we're looking at something completely different. Thanks. Anyone else like to jump in there? I could. I think another big thing about that is that like stimulant users are being left out of the conversation when it comes to this because it's just they don't see it as stimulant users have the same effect as someone that uses opiates but it's not true for a long time stimulant users especially IV stimulant users are affected by it because they go through a different withdrawal than people that just maybe like smoke it and stuff like that but it's also a lot of stimulant users that are using drugs and drug supply is so toxic now that it's leaped into a stimulant now that it's like massively contaminated with fentanyl or benzos and same with cocaine and crack and it's becoming more and more of an issue that a lot of people don't seem to want to talk about or bring up because it's an opiate crisis and it's not true. It's toxic drug supply crisis is a big one. Yeah, I really want to echo from our research perspective and looking at the data in the end corners, records and, and information. It's certainly not an opiate crisis. You know, stimulant users are increasingly impacted and affected. And so in thinking about safe supply, some of our preliminary work is showing that people who use drugs often don't know that it's available, or if they do know it's available, they're not given the kinds of drugs that they need or that they want. I don't know, Callie, you could probably speak to that experience as well from you know your observations, and also a real discrepancy in access based on where people are. So the current systems right now, you know, maybe if you're living in the downtown east side, you could find somebody like Christy Sutherland, but you know, you get a few kilometers outside and it's absolutely nothing. So access type, there's so many more innovations that are needed around the safe supply to have an impact. And I completely agree with Dean how important decriminalization is, and it's a huge step. But I also think it's really important to emphasize that, as Kelly was saying, it's not going to have an impact on overdose deaths. 
And I think if the public has that perception that this is a response to the overdose crisis, they're going to be potentially disappointed or having unfounded evaluations of how decrim goes over time. So I think it's really important to keep the perspective of what decrim can and can't do in this context. You know, I think Kelly is so right. I'm an opiate addict and I don't even think about methamphetamine. So like in all of my 22 years, I'm mostly speaking from an opiate standpoint. I know that some of my stance covers that, but stimulants have even a worse name amongst people. And in fact, on this extended access program that Dr. Southern's running, we've got fentanyl. I was the first person to buy powdered fentanyl to take home and use as I wished. It looks like heroin maybe in September, but the government just doesn't want to move on methamphetamine. They just don't want to touch it. So even now, Kelly is so right on. He is way behind the rock. Opiate acts have sort of pushed the little rock a little bit off us, but Kelly and his buddies are there under the rock, period. Cora, Eric, I'm wondering if you can just speak to, you know, since this study has been done, there's so many other research questions that come to the surface in the way that Dean and Kelly raise. And I'm wondering if you could just speak to the kinds of things that come up for you as researchers doing work with community members in terms of what are the areas and the questions in the future of which research can help inform the movement of public policy. I think a huge interest and piece for us right now is looking at decrim, although I think it's very clear it's not going to have a notable impact on the overdose crisis. I think it is really important to be able to monitor and evaluate the extent to which it's at least meeting its objectives around reducing contact with police and improving people's experiences on a day-to-day basis when they're in their community and in the streets. So that's something that is a research priority for us. And an aspect of that is also looking at the impact for young people. There's been age restrictions around decrim, and so seeing the exclusion of younger people, what the potential impact is for that. And another big area for us and how we've designed our research and and Dean and and Callie have both contributed in a lot of ways into the structure of our research questions and various things is looking at safe supply and how it's access and what the reception is like for people who use drugs and how far reaching it is within our cohort studies are based in Vancouver. So we're, you know, we don't have a rural aspect to it, but even just within people in Vancouver, what the reach is like for people. So those are two areas that we're sort of focusing on right now. Yeah, I would echo everything that Cora said. I think something else in addition to the fact that there's an age limit, so decriminalization excludes youth who use drugs. I think another important point is also just that decriminalization in BC excludes a multitude of other substances. So it's really just focused on opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA. So that also leads out diverted pharmaceuticals and psychedelics as well. And I would also add just that decriminalization in BC obviously excludes other jurisdictions across Canada. So there's not much equity there for people who use drugs across Canada. Kelly, Dean, from your perspective, what do you see as research that would be helpful in terms of uh, what's happening on the ground that could move the dial on public policy? I helped write a paper around youth calls to action around harm reduction and stuff like that. And that's one big thing that we're hoping that will help change and influence people to understand that youth use drugs and just it's a big thing. Like this decree model is really left out youth and it's like a lot of youth buy large amounts. So it doesn't get suspicious, whatever, with their parents and whatever. But it's just, it's really frustrating that it's been, youth have been left out again because youth, yeah, youth use drugs and just harm reduction really needs to bring focus to youth that use drugs by providing education and safety to that. And even just like how the quote unquote safe supply model works, it leaves out youth too. Like youth don't have access to a lot of the same things that a lot of us can access when it comes to a safe supply. So change the dial, I think it really needs to 
listen to the calls of actions we made with their paper that we wrote in youth harm reduction stuff. Well, I would really like to see some real research on how badly the police affect our lives through the prohibition. And because of the prohibition, they're just reactions to the prohibition, their own personal vendetta against us. It's funny, you know, people say, oh, you know, uh, we got to take handguns off. I'm more likely to be shot by a police officer in the downtown east side than any gunslinging gangster. And there's been talk about this for a long time, you know, prohibition. I would like to see some real research that says their effect is causing this. Their effect is causing that. And for once to be able to say, see, it's not just us. This is real. All this research that's ever been around there has always sort of been fluffy around the edges and it doesn't really want to stab at the real problem. And I'll tell you, anybody who's a drug user, especially if they're on the street or around the street, know what I'm talking about. And the prohibition, obviously, is the killer. But the way the police enact that law is just horrible. And I've seen it in so many cities. It's not just Vancouver. It's in every lower income neighborhood in North America. Thanks, Dean. Is there anything that any of you would like to add? I think one thing I was thinking of recently in the news with discussion around charging pharmaceutical companies around opiate prescribing and those types of things, just emphasizing what I think a distraction that is from the overdose crisis and, you know, the In different settings, that may have been more of a driver, but we have looked into it within Vancouver and within the people who use drugs within our cohort studies. And we haven't found big connections between people entering substance dependence through physician prescribing and the the kinds of harms that happen when subscriptions are taken back and rolled back is really just devastating, just connected to these conversations. And, you know, Dean, please jump in because... You're so right, Cora. A 14-year-old kid doesn't get his dope off a pharmacist. He gets it off a 15-year-old kid. You're right. That's how people start drugs. The thing is, if the kid's looking for something, that drug dealer might have two or three other things. And so the kid gets introduced to other drugs. And that's how, say, so-called gateway. It's the prohibition that starts it. But you're right. I know some people who were too easily given Oxycontin back in the day because they had a hockey injury or something like that. They got caught up with it, but it wasn't because the doctor didn't do everything in his possibility to get those pills off after two weeks and everything else. They just fell in love with the drug and they carried on. I think you're really right, Cora. The doctors are being punished way too much over this whole thing. And now they're scared to prescribe properly. They're scared to give opiates to some people who are in horrible pain But I like the fact that they're getting stringent about not giving it for very long periods of time to anybody who's in supreme pain. And so I think you're right on, Cora. Erica, anything you'd like to add? I would just echo those comments. I think it takes up a lot of new space, I think, especially since there's been recent settlements. But yeah, I think the conversation really needs to be refocused on that the crisis is still ongoing. And how can we implement real policy change? Kali? Yeah, it is kind of. The media is really washing out with this and saying that like it's going to be helping the overdose crisis when it's not. That's not the reason why it's going on. It's because we have a toxic drug supply and the toxic drug supply needs to be addressed more than what's going on with what doctors are doing and stuff like that. So it's not the doctors that are making these drugs toxic. I'm wondering now, what's next then? Since the study has come out, how has it been received and have you engaged with policymakers around it? Yeah, so we've done a couple of presentations to different levels of government on the research findings. 
So my research was completed after the federal government approved decriminalization, which was the threshold of 2.5 grams. So I think at this stage, our focus kind of turns to evaluation, like Cora was saying, and looking at, you know, do the thresholds need to be lowered or higher based on the evidence that we see coming out of our research after decriminalization is implemented? I don't know if you have anything to add there, Cora. Yeah, I think any opportunity that we have to share our work with people in government, policymakers, and I also put a lot of emphasis too in terms of the public, because I think the public, the more that they're putting pressure on their elected representatives and saying that they support things like safe supply, decrim, progressive drug policy, I think the more change and the more progress we will have. It's certainly incredibly frustrating when, you know, we've had the kind of evidence around the harms of, of prohibition and criminalization. You know, sometimes it's frustrating in terms of, do we really need more studies around this? What more is another study going to do that hasn't already been said? But, you know, then again, it does seem that there are sometimes these policy windows where, you know, research evidence does come to play and can push things forward. And knowing that research evidence was so critical with the supervised injection site court case. And, you know, you just sort of never know where it is going to make a difference or change some minds or, you know, open some other perspectives. So I think, you know, what people who use drugs and, you know, what Dean and Kali are doing and the kind of advocacy and engagement that they're doing, you know, they have more power than the research, but I think hopefully all of it together, bringing it forward wherever we can will move things forward. So that's what we're hoping. Yeah, you know, this last little bit of research seems to have caught the public's fancy. I'm asked by the media when anything has to do with drugs, the media contacts me, whether I get published or not, it doesn't matter. But on this one, I was quite surprised at how widespread the media was looking at the latest research and other research that's come out in the last, say, five months. So I think right now that people are actually realizing that Made in Canada research is pushing the overall movement. And that's what saved our lives at Insight. So we've got to keep this up. Just keep going the way we're going. We've got to keep proving that this stuff, what we're saying is right. You know, I wish Callie and his folks would have a lot more research on the youth because youth dope and adult dope are two different dopes. It's not the same. They are in way more uh, stressful situations than the average adult. So that's really got to get looked into. I mean, seriously, if they want to start affecting change in the youth of this country, start looking at the youth, for crying out loud. Anyways, I could go on a rant forever, but. Kelly, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, like there's a rise brings a lot of research for youth and stuff like that. Politicians love research and stuff, but it's really frustrating that they're just not wanting to acknowledge it or see it and just like trying to do things like involuntary treatment, for instance, and it's a terrible idea and not the right way to do it. It's just we need harm reduction services and education for youth to understand that youth are going to use drugs and stuff, but it's just a lot of the higher ups or whatever don't want to really read that research or see that research not acknowledging it or acknowledging people lived experience for instance around it and so it's really frustrating that people don't really want to address it and a lot of people are just wanting to go thinking that treatment will be the right push for them when it's like that's not going to work all the time yeah i had a question just around are there other policy jurisdictions in other countries that are more progressive than the Canadian context in terms of decriminalization or other drug policy that we can look to that could help inform our context here. If any of you have anything to share related to that research or. You know, the city of Vancouver has the best drug outcomes period in the world, as far as I'm concerned, 
you know, you've had Portugal do their thing, but they're still embracing the whole medical model without looking at the social model at all. Look at the city of Portland. They're like Vancouver. And I think a lot of these ways of using the law doesn't have to be national sometimes. It can be made in the areas that it's being really effective. But, you know, there's always a place to learn from other places. What I would add is I think the model that Vancouver, that BC put forward had two really important features in it. One being that there's no administrative penalties for possession under the threshold. So in many other places, you get what would be sort of like a ticket or some kind of fine, which can be absolutely devastating for somebody really in terms of we know when those sort of tickets add up and then they turn into arrests and they turn into incarcerations and they're just crippling. And then another important, very important feature is that there's no seizures under the threshold. And so not having people worried that their drugs are going to be taken away is really, I think, one of the key benefits and wins of the decrim model. Because from research, too, we know that when people have their drugs taken away, they're more likely to be in absolute desperation. They'll be more likely to go to a dealer that they don't know as well, use a supply that's not as well known, or also they have to go and do some sort of criminal activity to get more money to get drugs again. So those are two aspects of the decriminalization model that are very important. And I don't think any other setting has those two features together. So in that sense, I say, let's not look at other places. Let's look at BC. Let's evaluate it and monitor it. And I think it's a very, very progressive and important. You got to save that clip, Ann. That was perfect, Cora. I wish, I wish we could just bottle that up for a minute. And if you want to use advertising for your podcast, that was beautiful. Exactly. Those two things change it all. They can't do anything. That's why I'm really adamant about this police stuff right now. That's the real line that we've got to somehow find. And if they can't take anything away from us and they can't give us anything, like a ticket, bye, officer, see you later, and you're on your way. This is wonderful stuff. This is as big as insight, easily. But Callie, you could also probably speak to that. That won't be the case for younger people. Yeah, no, that won't be the case for younger people. That's what's really frustrating. For instance, a lot of youth buy in large amounts because it's just a safety thing. And it's also that they don't. People don't get suspicious when they're leaving the house 20 times to go and do that. And also they brought large amounts to share with their friends, to maybe sell to their friends, whatever. And it's really frustrating because I've dealt with two cases now where youths have been arrested because they had drugs in them. And it brings a criminal case to it. And it just brings this element of them being arrested, them being traumatized by that. And then it's a whole thing of just them needing more drugs to cope with that traumatization. It's like whatever happened to not locking up kids, but it's becoming more and more of an issue now. And especially with this decrim stuff, a lot of youth are probably going to face criminal charges due to the fact of having drugs in them. The model does not have youth attached to it. I'm hoping we don't see more arrests with youth, but we never know because it seems like cops are going to want to arrest someone. So it's going to be tricky, I think. Yeah. Uh, so my, my last uh, question to to each of you, let's say you were walking down the street and you just happened to run into the premier and the prime minister, and you were going to tell them what provincial and federal government policy should be doing that would advance the interests of, of drug users, uh, make their day-to-day life easier, better, away from harms. What would you suggest to them? Why don't we start with Dean? Well, boy, oh boy, tough question. I think Horgan's been one of the worst premiers ever for anything harm reduction. He's just horrible. I think I tell Trudeau about a story about when I met his dad just after the Ladane Commission came out in 1972, when the other prime minister, Trudeau, said, 
we should just legalize all drugs. And of course, the American pushback was so heavy in 72 that even no matter what the Ladane Commission said, it was over. That's what I would remind him that his father said that all drugs should be legalized in 1972, 50 years ago this year. What I should say to the premier is I wish the NDP would do a lot more for the drug user. They've done absolutely nothing. So there you go. That's what I'd say, Anne. Great. Thanks. Erica. I would definitely echo Dean's feelings there. And I think a regulated safe supply in the form and quantity that people who use drugs need. Over 22,000 people have died during the current overdose crisis. And I think it's time that we implement true policy change that's actually going to stop people from dying. And then I think the other part is ending the barbaric system that we have of prohibition and decriminalization across the country for personal possession. I think that those are the two policy changes I would really like to see. Okay, thanks. Colin? I probably have a hard time saying something because it's just it's so much anger and just frustration because it's just, yeah, our premier has not done anything. I believe that you wouldn't hear us, but what everyone else is saying is just like having a regulated supply and stuff like that would be great, but they're just not listening. And that's what's really frustrating. They need to listen. So I can really say to that without getting mean. Great. Thank you. Cora? Yes, very much what everyone else is saying, a regulated supply. So not decriminalization. Decriminalization doesn't address the supply of drugs, but a regulated supply of drugs or legalizing drugs makes it so that, you know, just as people who are getting alcohol are able to know what the purity, what the concentration, what the content of what they're drinking is, that's what we need for drugs. And also from my perspective, but I think we would need very close monitoring and evaluation. When something is regulated, we have a lot more tools to help control the use. And, you know, we've had very successful public health interventions and measures around things like tobacco consumption. And so, you know, always a balance between being overly stringent, but I think with a regulated model, there's a lot more tools in terms of reducing the harms of substance use and recognizing the benefits of substance use as well. So that is what I would advocate for nationally. Great. Thank you all so much for joining us on Below the Radar, Dean, Erica, Cora, Kali. So wonderful to speak with you and thank you for the great work that you're doing. And hopefully we're going to see some changes sooner rather than later. This has been a long time happening and we've been in the middle of a public health crisis for a very long time and a crisis that was declared in something like 2016 again and still seeing worrying trends in terms of the numbers of people dying and the situation on the ground. So thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Dr. Cora DeBeck, Erica McAdam, Callie Sedgmore, and Dean Wilson. Head to the show notes to check out resources mentioned in the show, as well as more research around drug policies in Vancouver. We release episodes every Tuesday, so subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting app of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for tuning in. 